This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When Freedom Calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. How do you handle somebody who clearly doesn't want to answer your question? You can ask the same question once or twice more. Do you have a limit where you say, well, I'm just not going to go past three times because <laughs> it's getting us nowhere? Or do you, do you bald-facedly call them out? That's me interviewing CNN's Jake Tapper about the art of interviewing. But this episode of Clear and Vivid has a twist. What do you remember? Like, what is the most vivid memory you have of making MASH? And I realize it's an 11-year experience with lots of different people. But do you have, like, one vivid memory or a few vivid memories? That's right. In this episode, Jake spends as much time turning his interviewing skills on me as I spend interviewing him. As you'll hear, we both had a lot of fun. And we got some revealing answers. Jake, I'm so glad to be talking with you today. This is really a treat. I think it'd be a good idea to explain to the audience how this happened. We were talking about your being on the show, and you suggested interviewing me. And my reaction was full of, uh, you know, blameless modesty. Oh, I don't want to be interviewed on my own show. And then I, and then I thought, wait a minute. Maybe it would be fun to make it a meta-interview where we talk about what is involved in a good interview using you as a model because you've done so many wonderful interviews and we can break in every once in a while and talk about the mechanics of a good interview. What do you think? I think it sounds great. I also just, I mean, my, my thinking was also that so many people who listen to your podcast and read your books and, and follow you are just also fans of yours and probably wouldn't mind hearing you talk about you a little bit more than you do. So that was also my uh, my thinking as as a fan of yours myself. So, but uh, yeah. So do you, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? So you go ahead. You do the interview any way you want. Great. So my first question is: You started the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook in two thousand nine, and. One of the things that I wonder about is, since so much of acting is communication, you're communicating the character's emotions, feelings, motivations. Have you learned anything from your work in communication of science that has informed at all your acting? And, and if so, what and, and how? That's a really interesting question because it kind of works both ways. 
I started the Center for Communicating Science to help scientists communicate better, and I begin all of that training with improvisation training because the basis of communication, to me, is very much similar to the way two actors communicate on stage, the way they relate to each other, take each other into one another's consciousness, conscious field. But it also works the other way because the more I've been training scientists and writing about it, thinking about it, it's changed me a little bit. I don't know if this happens to you when you study something or go through an experience that seems like it's directed out, it comes back in at you. And I don't, it probably has affected my acting. I certainly know it's affected the way I talk to other people. I'm constantly, when I write an email, I'm constantly thinking, what's, what's this person thinking as I lay down this sentence? And how can I make the next sentence make use of what the person is, has just been thinking? So it's changed a, a very much of my behavior. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I guess you, you've been thinking about this longer than than just since 2009 when you when you opened the center at Stony Brook. But but I, I think about the acting roles that you've had, and I don't I don't know that you could say that you, you you're able to dig deeper, but but you certainly have different roles. I mean, I'm think I think of Horace and Pete as the most unlike you role that I've ever seen you do. Um, so you, but maybe that's just because I'm not saying you're a better actor now than you were in the seventies. Maybe it's just like such a departure from who you oh, are. Oh God, I hope I am. I'm trying to get better all the time. That's my main goal. But it's the most different, right? I mean, don't you think that character in Horace and Pete, the Louis C.K. show was so unlike you. I'm wondering um, what the process is for communicating and for acting as somebody who is the least like you, tell me if you if you agree that that character was the least like you, and and who who do you think that you you've acted? What role have you played that is the most like you? You know, the answer to that question is uh, ironically, every character I've played fits both descriptions: the least like like me and the most like me at the same time. Because even even Hawkeye on Mash which people began to say sometimes I was just playing myself. I, fa- I, in fact, didn't know how I was going to play that part because he seemed so different from me. And it wasn't until the last moment, as I was walking out onto the set for the first shot, I thought, I still don't know how I'm going to be this guy. And then a nurse was coming by, and I grabbed her around the waist and gave her a hug, and all of a sudden I thought, oh, I'm Hawkeye. That's not so hard. But it was at the last second... And yet, I had to use all the spare parts that exist in me that corresponded to who Hawkeye was and construct him out of me. So it was very much alien to me, and it was very much me at the same time. And that was true of the character in Horace and Pete, which I love. It's one of the, one of the shows that I've been on and performances I've done that I treasure. And... I, I, it was very unlike me. The guy, the guy's, uh, he sounds like a racist, although I don't think he is. But it's funny, it's hard for me to talk about characters I've played. Why? Because if you talk about it, 
you reduce it to a set of words and concepts that are intellectual. And I, I, I'm trying to get my nervous system to, to be the person below a level of consciousness. So I'm not telling my body how to behave. I'm not telling my face what to do. I want it to happen automatically the way it does in life. So I know it doesn't do me any good to talk about it. Okay, well, I won't ask too many questions about it then, but, but <laughs> I, I do wonder, because you bring up the fact that people thought that when you were playing Hawkeye Pierce that you were playing yourself, which is kind of a testament to, well, a few things. One, how effortless you made it seem. Two, the fact that in the 11-year run of MASH, you you became the, the driving force of it creatively. I wouldn't say that's true. I think that's an internet myth. Well, and you became a driving force creatively. I mean, after the first, you don't think? Well, I made a lot of suggestions, but they weren't always taken. And I didn't have any any kind of power, which is good because uh, the producer runs a TV show. And and that 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 vision should uh, should remain with the producer. So one of the questions I was going to ask is, I mean, obviously, um, a Hawkeye Pierce was a was a womanizer, and you are you have famously been with the same woman since 1956, I believe. Yeah, we met in 56 and married in 57. Okay, that's quick. <laughs> it's not that not these days. Oh, oh, I guess it is these days you live together for 12 years. Right. So what has focusing on communication, obviously you, I mean, I would assume you and Arlene have great communication because you've had such a successful marriage, but what has focusing on communication? Yeah, but uh, go ahead. Sorry, I keep interrupting you because there's this lag on the internet. The, The thing about communicating with Arlene is kind of funny because I've written a whole book on communicating and, uh, Sometimes Arlene will give me a certain look and say, would you please look at page 12? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Well, what have you learned in your focus on communication these last couple decades that you've been able to apply to your personal relationships? I mean, you just alluded to it when you talked about when you send an email, your mind being not where you are, but where the recipient is, which is so brilliant and something that I definitely need to take into account in my life, because usually I'm just so frenetically just like trying to communicate what I want and what I'm thinking at that moment that I'm not even thinking, well, where is where am I reaching this person? What is he or she thinking? The worst is from about 1.30 until 4 when my show goes on air, we're working on scripts and I'm writing scripts in all caps because that's the best way to read it on the teleprompter. And then somebody will email me and I'll write back to them and I'm writing back in all caps, which seems like I'm yelling at them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm, and they get the email and why is he so angry? You know, and I'm not, I'm just, uh, I just forgot to turn off all caps. You know, the interesting thing is with the other person in mind, as much as, it, as that is the case now with me, I find myself like a lot of people, way overusing exclamation points to soften the effect of a brief statement. You know, like instead of that was that was great, period, I'll say that was great exclamation point. Yeah. 
just so that no irony is intended or, or received. It's tricky. I do tend to apply that automatically more than I did before in my own life. I try to automatically think of how it's, how it's affecting the other person. Things I say, things I write, even, sometimes even the distracted look on my face. It's no, not helpful to be distracted when somebody's talking to you. You've got to focus on them. And I remember once directing a movie called The Four Seasons. Great movie. And it, it was a thank you. It was the first movie I directed, the first feature I directed. And the director has to walk around with the whole movie in his head all the time. And one of the actors, and I loved all the actors, and we had a good relationship. And I remember one, I forget who it was, came up to me and said, what do you think in that scene where I do this? Can I, do you think I could say that, this? And she saw something on my face that she, did, she thought was turning her down. And she said, oh, it's all right, never mind. And all, what I was doing was running through the movie in my head to see how that change would affect everything else in the movie. But it, uh, it had an effect on her that wasn't good. It kind of, kind of stalled the relationship with us for a second, you know. So that's, that's the kind of thing where real focus on the other person for the purpose of the other person doing better, feeling better, being better connected. I think that's very important. Yeah, and tough to do, especially when we're all in quarantine and you can't necessarily see the other person unless you're Zooming because so many of us are just connected from text or, or email. Yeah, and, and even if you are trying to keep six or ten feet away from somebody, you know, you're taking a walk with somebody and you want to keep your distance, some people forget what six feet looks like, and they confuse it with two feet <laughs> and how to communicate <laughs> to them. Get the hell away from me. <laughs> it's not that easy always. Are you enjoying this time? See, this is what I do in an interview. I always turn it into a conversation. Yeah. I hope that doesn't throw you. Are you enjoying anything about this time? There are things that I enjoy about it. First of all, I have to say, I'm lucky that I can do what I do still in this time when the economy is cratering and everything. And um, I mean, CNN has built an entire studio in my house for me. That I so I can do my I don't go into work and I haven't in two months, but it looks so good. People think I'm I'm uh, I'm at work and I'm not. I'm, I'm just in a room in my house and they've put a big screen behind me and they've brought in lights and a camera and teleprompter and everything. So but do you find that interviewing somebody where you don't have them right in front of you across the desk where you can more easily read their face and their posture and that kind of thing? Does that. Does that make the interview harder for you to do it online like this? Yeah, I hate it. I just hate it. Really? Yeah, I really hate it, especially when it's a politician. Um, because, Why? Because they, their inclination is to not answer the question. Their inclination is to filibuster. Um, and it's really tough to... It's tough to politely interrupt uh, by satellite. Uh, and it's also just somebody might be saying something and then you try to get in there and it's like five seconds later. It's, it's just, it's, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like it. I don't, 
the, the one thing about it I don't mind is that because so many people are watching TV, it's much easier to get interviews with people. And I do see our show, I do think that we are focusing a lot on information to help people. In fact, I was thinking about you yesterday because I was interviewing the head of the Louisiana University system. And they've announced, he announced yesterday, uh, I believe it was yesterday, that they're, they're, they're going to try to bring students back to school in the fall, 92,000 students. And, um, and I was thinking about you because um, I was thinking about, well, I have so many questions for him. And so I, I just said to him before the interview, just bear with me. I'm just going to tick through a whole bunch of things that people want to hear. And instead of just giving me a big three-paragraph answer, if you could just answer each one, I think that will be helpful for people to understand. And I don't normally do that, um, but I think when it comes to an interview where you're really just trying to get information as opposed to challenging people or speaking truth to power, um, like you do when you interview scientists and doctors a lot of times. I do like that part of journalism, which you do also, which is just kind of like trying to get people to be able to understand complicated issues. But when it comes to the other part of the job, which is challenging people who are making decisions and need to be challenged, the satellite aspect of it makes it much more complicated and and more difficult to do. When you have somebody right in front of you and there's no lag uh, caused by the, uh, the latency of the Internet, how do you handle somebody who clearly doesn't want to answer your question? You can ask the same question once or twice more. Do you have a limit where you say, well, I'm just not going to go past three times because right. it's getting us nowhere? Or do you, do you bald-facedly call them out or her? It, what do you, it, how do you handle it when, to, get, to, to get past that tendency to not answer? That's such a good question. It's just really, it depends on the individual and the, the, the scene and the, and the importance of it. I mean, I, uh, one time, the last time I got to interview Mr. Trump um, was uh, the summer of 2016. And he had just said to the Wall Street Journal that the judge, Judge Curiel, who was uh, ruling on the Trump University case, could not be fair because he uh, was of Mexican descent. That's not how he put it. I think he said he called him a Mexican, but, you know, he's from Indiana. He's just of Mexican descent. So I, I went into that question and I had a few questions for him before that. But then when I got to the Judge Curiel thing, I wanted to get to the point of, isn't that, if you're saying he can't do a job because of his race, or ethnicity, isn't that the definition of racism? I mean, isn't that, and you know, and, and, and Mr. Trump, then Mr. Trump, now President Trump, is very good at just steamrolling interviews, interrupting and just doing, you know, three or four paragraph long answers, deflecting, 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 changing the subject and attacking you, this, you know, it is, he's very skilled at it. But I just decided for that one, I'm, you know, this is important because he's saying that somebody can't be a judge because they're Latino. And that's, I need to, I need to get to the, I need, there's an end point in this interview on this, on this question. And I'm getting there. And I think somebody, the Washington Post or somebody 
said I, I followed up 21 times or something like that. You know, they weren't full follow-up. 21 times with well, the same question? It, was, it, was, it, 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 it's not actually, it wasn't actually 21 times, but it was like me try, I was trying to get there. I kept trying 21 times. Yeah. And then finally I got there. But normally, normally uh, I'll say something like, okay, well, you're not answering the question, but I don't want to waste my viewers' time or something like that. Or if they if they vaguely come in the neighborhood of answering it, then I might just move on. But it's tough. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to do, and you really have to fortify yourself, and it's exhausting, emotionally exhausting. You know this. We're we're not built for conflict, human beings, evolutionarily. I mean, I think that we are we're here because our species has figured out how to get along with people. Um, and uh, I just think like people avoid conflict. So it's, it's tough. You know, I really got to eat my Wheaties if I'm expecting a tough one. <laughs> you know, it's funny. As the person who's been interviewed more than 1,000 times, I don't know how many times in my life, there are some times when I, I don't want to get into a whole area, especially in a print interview where the writer will sometimes quote my answer to a question I had never thought of raising. They raise the question, but they don't say they raise the question. They right. just quote my answer. As if you brought it like, up. Yeah, like, uh, well, everybody should wear a bikini if they feel like it. Uh, you know, but I wouldn't, I, I didn't bring up bikinis. The, the reporter brought up bikinis. So why, why am I suddenly talking about, it sounds like I'm a, a nitwit, you know? Yeah. So in cases like that, instead of saying, I don't want to talk about that because that's what it would get to be quoted. I give a long, boring answer <laughs> from which you cannot extract a quote. <laughs> taking a brief break now and when we come back jake tapper sort of takes over the podcast he has questions for me that have me recalling the mash years but then we both tackle the question of legacies and we agree on well when we come back our program is sponsored by the kavli foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big astrophysics, the very small nanoscience, and the very complex neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, 
You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Jake Tapper, who kicks things off with a question for me. Here's a question I wanted to ask. So, as you know, I'm a huge fan of MASH. It was a very influential show for me growing up. Um, The first episode you wrote, I believe, was season one, episode 19, back when they had 19 episodes or more in a season, The Long John Flap. This is an episode where Hawkeye has... It's a bitter winter in Korea, and Hawkeye has a pair of long johns, and everyone's trying to get them because Hawkeye's so happy and everyone else is so miserable. And you wrote this episode. I mean, I, I know that you have you had before then a background in, in improvisation, and, and obviously you're, you're a brilliant guy and a brilliant writer, but how did you make the decision that you wanted to try writing an episode? I, I had been trying to be a good writer all my life. I I started wanting to be a writer when I was eight years old. My father, who had been in burlesque, had stacks of books of sketches from burlesque, and I would study them, and I loved the way they were constructed. I was trying to learn how to write at eight, and then later in life, when I was nine, I wanted to be an actor. But I never stopped wanting to be a writer And I've been writing all my life. It was a natural thing to want to write for MASH. And I I wrote a few scenes for a different episode, showed them to Larry Gelbart, the head writer, and he he said, I don't think the story works, but you surprised me with that joke. The scene works. Show me something else. So I got the idea to do the the long underwear show where the single pair of underwear passes from one person to another because of different things happening in their relationship. And it was really 
I was really making use of a storytelling form. So it's a, an old device that I borrowed, which was nice. You know, when you write for a show that's already in motion, you know what the characters are. You don't have to make up new characters. The location is already there. You know what you can make use of in terms of where things are and what's happening in them. You know what the theme generally of the whole series is. And in this case, I borrowed the structure, too. So I could concentrate on smaller things in my first script. And I loved it. I, had a, I, I really enjoyed it. Do you remember watching it? Do you remember feeling how it felt to see an episode that you had written? You know, I, I don't remember that. I do remember the first time I wrote some sketches for a review when I was very young. And the, the sketches were terrible, the review was terrible, and the <laughs> reviews that the show got were even worse. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, I can remember them word for word 50 years later. They were, they were just horrible. But I do remember the feeling of hearing an audience laugh at lines I wrote. Things that you write and that don't appear before an audience for months or years later, and they're reacting to those ideas, those thoughts, that sense of humor. That's an extraordinary experience, especially with laughter as the response. If you get a note in the mail, I like the show you wrote, it's a, it gives you a nice warm feeling, but it doesn't have the impact, the, the sock, hearing laughter. What do you remember? Like, what is the most vivid memory you have of making MASH? And I realize it's an 11-year experience with lots of different people. But do you have, like, one vivid memory or a few vivid memories you, you remember more than anything else? Yeah, it's very hard to, to isolate them. I mean, one memory that comes to mind is that when I directed my first show, it happened to be a show that had a picnic scene with 80 extras and I had seven cameras. I mean, it, I was I was really opening in the big time. Of all of you know, it wasn't uh, two shots and close-ups. It was I was trying to tell a story visually. And then at the end of the day, there in this picnic scene, at the end of the day, there was a tug of war, and the, everybody falls in the mud at the end of the tug of war. Well, you couldn't do that twice because <laughs> it would take an hour or two to get dressed right. again. So we only had one chance, and the sun was going down. And if the sun went down 15 seconds too soon, there would be no shot. And it worked out perfectly. They fell in the mud. They got up. They started to walk away from the camera into the distance as the sun set, and it gave me an automatic fade out. <laughs> the sun the sun faded out for me. Oh, that's amazing. And what I remember was that night getting on the plane to go home for the weekend in New Jersey. And I remember skipping down the sidewalk at the airport thinking, I can do it. I can do it. It's a great feeling. I think one of the great pleasures uh, is to be able to do what you do well, to know how to do well what you've learned to do. The next great feeling is to get better at it and do it better. Those are, those are some of the most profound bits of pleasure and satisfaction and happiness that I've ever felt. Can you say that you've, you 
like one more than the other in terms of writing, acting, directing? I like the temporary improvisational moment of acting on the stage where the performance just goes into the ether as soon as you do it, and it's it's not there again. Huh. And I like that. So acting on stage is your favorite if you had to rank them almost. Yeah, it is. It is. I feel I feel totally at home on the stage. And in movies, I have to always get used to it again. When I think of, uh, of your career, uh, you've obviously played a lot of complicated characters. I mean, even Hawkeye was not, you know, just 100% a good guy. But generally speaking, you play good guys. Generally. You pay, you I don't play, think that's true. You don't? I don't think so. No, I think, I think at least half or more than half, in fact, mostly... The people I played have been deeply flawed. Well, how do you, I mean, do you consider Hawkeye to be deeply flawed? Flawed enough. I don't know if I'd want to spend a whole lot of time in his company. I mean, he's, he's, he's written and played to be entertaining, but a half hour at a time, I think, is probably, probably my limit. All right. Well, you have to you have to embody them so you see the flaws more than the rest of us do, I think, maybe. So so but generally speaking, I would think of Hawkeye Pierce as like a good guy. Generally. I mean, I know he was a womanizer. He tried to save people's lives. Yeah. He fought for the good. He fought. He fought for issues. And and, uh, anyway. We're getting close to being near the end of the of the conversation for the podcast. Have I kept you from asking the most important thing you want to know from me? I'll, I'll, yeah, okay. Here's my most important question for you. I've been, th- this is not about you per se, but during this pandemic, I've been thinking a lot about death and how, how brief a time we have on this planet. And you've had an amazing life. You're having an amazing life. How do you want to be remembered? How do, how do you think it went for you? I, I'm happy to answer that. Can I ask you the same question after I answer it? Yeah, of course. Okay. I don't really care if I'm remembered. I, kn- I know I'll be remembered by the people I love and who love me. I'm, and I know I'm going to be forgotten in time. I always, when I think about that, when I think about being remembered, I always remember my visit to the cemetery in Paris called Père Lachaise, which has, I think, hundreds of acres devoted to monuments that people have constructed to themselves, mayors of small towns around France. And some of these people have died a hundred years ago. I doubt if anybody even in that small town knows who they are anymore. And here you have a three-story edifice celebrating their life. We'll all be forgotten in time. So what's the difference? I think what matters is, is something that I've thought of or invented or discovered or been able to do that made a made a contribution, made it easier, made it better for other people. If that goes on without anybody remembering me, then I won't have wasted my time. 
the other way not to waste my time is to not worry about what's going to happen after, but to be aware of what's happening now. I don't really think about what's going to happen after I'm dead. Marcus Aurelius said, don't worry about the past. It's over and done with. Don't worry about after you're dead. You're not going to be here. It's not going to make any difference. The present moment is all we have. So now what's your answer to the question? One of the other reasons I'm, I'm asking the question is because I'm in the middle of reading a, a biography of John McCain, uh, who was somebody uh, else who meant a lot to me. And there's a moment where you, you would love this. There's a moment where he becomes chairman of the Commerce Committee and he's point, he, he, would, he shows people all the portraits of the previous chairman of the committees. And like, just he'll say things like, these guys thought they were really big guys. They thought they were really important. Do you recognize any of them? Any of their names? You know who any of them are? And I, I have the exact same people. Somebody asked me one time, like, what's, what do you want your legacy as a journalist to be? And well, journalists don't have legacies. I mean, <laughs> what, maybe one of us a decade gets remembered, you know, Murrow, Cronkite. But generally speaking, people don't remember us. We're not telling our stories. We're telling their stories. So I'm the same as you. I think um, all I care about is that my wife and my son and my daughter and whoever else is there uh, related to me remembers that I just tried to be a good dad and a good husband and that I was a nice person to my friends and that I tried to do the best job I could as a journalist. But, you know, I was, I, I've had a great time and, and uh, I just want my loved ones to remember me. I feel the exact same way you do. That's great. Well, now we've come to the end of our conversation, but we always end a show with seven quick questions. Okay. Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Wow. I, I wish I really understood what happens after we die. That's, I really wish, I wish, I wish there was some sort of indication because I feel like death is this thing that we all dance around and we pretend isn't just like hovering in the shadows the whole time. And, and so much of, of life is just about distracting us from that. And I, I just wish there was some sort of hint, hint about what comes next, if anything. Uh, that's, that's, and had, nobody's ever said anything like that. What, what do you say to somebody who has their facts wrong? Sometimes I say that's not so. Sometimes I, it depends on the situation. That's a lie is the toughest thing to say, but it, it's not always clear that somebody knows that they're lying. But sometimes I say that's a lie. Sometimes I say that's not. I think it's probably safer to say that generally speaking, I say that's not accurate. That's not true. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? I can't even think. I can't think of any. It might be that it might be what you just asked me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not stumped very often. I don't know that I've ever been completely stumped. Um, I have a brain that like erases bad memories, like is self-protective. Like you know. One time I was talking to an ex-girlfriend and she reminded me that like I had actually broken up with her. Why did I think that she broke up with me? <laughs> so um, I probably erased it. I can't think of it. Maybe you just asked it. Okay, here's one. How do you handle a compulsive talker? Well, if it's on the show, then I will cut to commercial as soon as I can. Or just know it's okay to do it. Like if you know that, like okay, well, in two minutes I have commercial. If I'm at a party, 
I try to get out. I try to leave as soon as possible. I try to, oh, you know, I'll be right back or I have to go somewhere or I might even fake a phone ringing. (laughs) Have you done that? Yeah, we have a lot of them. I mean, I know you do have a lot of them in show business too, but like in politics and journalism, there are a lot of just people who are not stable. I mean, it's probably one of the most (laughs) underreported parts of journalism and politics is like how many people in those fields are just like, something's not right with them. Like legitimately emotionally disturbed people (laughs) who have TV shows or who have, you know, who are senators or members of the House. The other thing that, that people don't know is how genuinely stupid uh, a lot of politicians are just genuinely dumb. I mean, it is really remarkable. Well, that's depressing. I didn't mean to get a depressing <laughs> answer. Off the podcast, uh, I'll give you a list. <laughs> you're okay. So you're at dinner, sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start a, a real conversation? Um, you might. I, I think the best way to do that is how do you know so and so, whoever's throwing the dinner, because then all of a sudden you're into relationships. You're into, it's not just what do you do, where do you live, but like, how do you know Alan? And then they're telling, and then they're off and running and talking about a relationship, about a story that has something to do with personal connections. And, and usually there, I find there's usually, um, there's, there's emotions and, and there's some rich, there's a richness there. What do you do? I like to say, which um, is sort of blunt. I say, what are you passionate about? The, the only time I had a problem with that was, uh, I said, what are you passionate about? And the person said, well, I like golf. And that sort of <laughs> put an end to my ability to convert. Well, that's my point. I didn't know what to that's, say. But that's also my point about how there's <laughs> stupid people and crazy people. Like, they're also really boring people. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't doubt that that's what he was most passionate about. I know, but I was, I, I felt so compassionate. I thought, and I couldn't voice this. Oh my God, is that, is, is that your life? Don't you have something else that drives you that makes you get up and work? And, but I, it, it stymied me. It really, I, my own question stymied me. Okay, last question for you. What book changed your life? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um... I'm going to I'm going to change it just a little bit and make it like what have you read that changed your life if that's okay. Yeah. Good. One time I was on a ski trip. I was a few years out of college. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was on a ski trip with a bunch of kids and somebody had a copy of A New Republic and one of their friends had written a story, written an article in that issue of The New Republic. This is like I don't even know, 93, 1993, 94, somewhere in there, um, where um, the New Republic was just this incredible magazine in the 90s. Anyway, a light bulb went off where it was like, oh, real people, like peers, write stories, are journalists. This is something that people do for a living. It's not just I can pick up this magazine and read these great stories. I could theoretically be writing these stories. I could do this. And that's when I decided to become a journalist. That's the realization that 
people my age were able to get published just for sharing thoughts or analysis or reporting changed my life. Because that's when I was like, oh, I should be a journalist. That's what I should be doing. That's great. Jake, I've had such a good time talking with you. I, I hope we both accomplished what we meant to accomplish when we started out on this conversation. But it was fun regardless. Thank you for doing it with me. Well, my goal was just to hang out with you. So, you know, since we can't do lunch anytime in the near future. <laughs> well, that worked out great. Yeah. So thank you so much. It's always, it's always just such a treat for me to, to spend any time with you at all. I feel the same way. Thank you, Jake. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Jake Tapper is the chief Washington correspondent for CNN. And he hosts the weekday television news show, The Lead with Jake Tapper, and the Sunday morning program, State of the Union. He's also written a widely praised novel called The Hellfire Club, as well as an account of one of the deadliest battles of the war in Afghanistan called The Outpost. That book is the basis of a movie of the same title, and it's available for streaming on July 3rd. Don't miss it. It's a powerful story. You can keep up with Jake at jaketapper.com, as well as on Twitter at Jake Tapper. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. Next in our series of conversations, I have some serious fun with two old friends, Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue. We talk about their new book and how to make a marriage last and last happily, which, of course, is serious fun in itself. The whole book, these are people who took their marriage seriously. But holy cow, the trouble they had. There's no way you get through marriage Without the valley. I think you have to buy the package, right? I, yeah, yeah. I like what uh, Viola Davis said. She said, you're not married when you walk down the aisle. Your marriage doesn't really start till you're sitting across from this person and he's doing this thing that really annoys you. That's when your marriage starts. Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue. Next time on Clear and Vivid. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>